So I, I believe that structural engineering is a super important aspect of society. I mean, everyone lives in a home. Everyone lives in an apartment building. I mean, without structural engineers, none of these buildings or structures would be around. Welcome to It's Soil, Not Dirt, an interview-based podcast on all aspects of geotechnical engineering and sponsored by PRI Engineering, experts of soil mechanics. We aim to come in under 20 minutes while diving deep into one question around a single topic. It's particle-sized and meaningful. Before we get into the meat of today's topic, Tim, would you be able to, to talk a little bit about what DG Biddle and Associates does? Yes, uh, DG Biddle and Associates Limited was established in 1970. Um, the founder was Devin Biddle. It, it now consists of five partners. The, the core of the business is civil engineering. They do, they do the subdivisions. And then we have a building component of the company that does structural engineering, mechanical, electrical engineering, and we also offer architectural. Great. Thanks, Tim. Um, so if you could just lay out for our listeners, what does a structural engineer do? So structural engineers, we plan, design, and we review the construction of structures. Um, we analyze gravity loads, your live load, your dead loads. We also analyze the lateral loads of the building, which consists of your wind and earthquake loads. Um, we, we make sure that the buildings or the structure doesn't fall over. We take an architect's or client's vision. At, sometimes it could be a napkin sketch and we make it a reality. In my career, I've been involved in um, a numerous amount of projects ranging from residential, commercial, and industrial. Um, it could be as small as a residential house, renovation of beam and a house, removing a load-bearing wall, or it could be you know, a six-story cast-in-place concrete residential apartment building. Maybe I would like to start a little bit of a controversy here. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit, especially with Arash here, who is a geotechnical engineer, maybe you could talk a little bit about the importance of uh, geotechnical investigations in the eyes of a structural engineer. Uh, for me, it's, it's the most important thing. I mean, my structure sits on soil. And so if, if we don't know what the soil is, then, then we're in trouble. That's exactly what I'd like to hear from a, from a structural engineer. And it, and it is refreshing, to be honest with you, because that's, even as a geotechnical engineer, sometimes we don't appreciate how much we need to interact with the structural engineer to develop, you know, cost-effective and constructible designs. Um, you know, a lot of the times as engineers, we kind of work in our own silo and that isn't always going to, you know, give the client, the customer, the end user ultimately the best product. So it is very refreshing to hear a structural engineer say, you know, well, I got it, I got it found on soil. And I've jokingly always said, geotechnical engineers are always going to have jobs as long as uh, 
until we can float structure, and I don't think we're quite there yet. So it's, yeah, it's nice, nice to hear structural engineers, you know, understand the importance. But on the flip side, you know, a geotechnical engineer has to, you know, respect the structural requirements yes, as well. For sure. Soil seismic classification um, is really important in structural engineering. Um, specifically for the lateral bracing of a building or the lateral systems resisting the earthquake loads. Um, so if if your geotechnical engineer hasn't specified the seismic classification for the soil, we either have to assume a, a larger seismic classification, which then could increase your lateral resisting systems 30, 40, 50%, which then leads to larger strip footings, foundation pads, which causes the client to have to pay more money for their building. What are the different soil classifications and like how do they impact how you, you do your job? Um, so I believe there, it goes from A to E. And typically, if if a, if the geotechnical engineer hasn't been asked to do a seismic classification uh, analysis on the dirt, then typically they go up one seismic class, which could be the difference between you know an extra 30, 40 percent on the design loads for the building which are pretty significant. Like what, what does that mean in terms of like the structure itself? Yeah, so like if you've got 30, 40% magnified design loads, it's gonna mean you're gonna have thicker steel, you're gonna have more wood if it's wood shear walls. Um, if it's concrete, you're gonna have maybe wider concrete shear walls with more rebar. And then ultimately your foundations are could be 40% larger than what they would be if you know it was a class C or it's it's an interesting point, Tim, because a lot of developers or others that you know obviously don't know much about the topic as the two of us do, this is kind of a forgotten piece. And, you know, technically, as per how the International Building Code, which is kind of the main uh, derivative of, you know, the guidelines we have in Canada for this type of analysis, it says you need to look at the top 30 meters of soil. And what's the average depth we always do boreholes for a building? Usually starting point is 20 feet. You know, you might get 30 feet, 35, 50 feet, maybe 100 if you're lucky. And so there's a lot of assumptions, like you say, that need to go into this. The, the most appropriate way to do a site classification is by doing a MASW, which is a multi-channel analysis of surface waves, which is essentially how, you know, waves that we can't see that would, you know, be permeated from an earthquake how they dissipate through a soil medium. And 
once again, it's interesting that you bring that up because it reminds me of a project where we had initially done the A, done the classification based on 20, 25 potentially foot boreholes. And the architect really wanted us to classify the site as a site C because the amount of timber bracing that was going to be reduced if we did that. Um, you know, from a practical standpoint, we felt what they were requesting was appropriate. However, we didn't have the data to support the request and appreciating how much of a difference that makes in the actual structure. We did go and do an MASW and the MASW did yield positive results. And, you know, maybe that's a $10,000, $15,000 study, but it resulted in significantly higher savings for the, for the structure as a whole. And that is, you know, one of those things that smart developers, smart, ge smart geotechnical engineers, smart structural engineers, smart architects are able to kind of identify where there is a benefit to getting a little bit more, a, a little bit better uh, data, right? Like you said, if we don't have the data set we need, we may need to make a conservative assumption and, you know, upscale the actual classification. Exactly. It's the same with soil bearing capacities. Um, sometimes we've got clients that don't want to pay for a soil report. So from our point of view, to be conservative, we'll, we'll design the foundations for a lower bearing soil capacity basically to cover our own self and then until but until they start digging you know maybe the client will have to pay us to redesign the foundations because we we run into even worse dirt than we uh designed for so really it, it is in the client's best interest to be paying for a geotechnical report no absolutely and and you know, we see that a lot as well. I, I always know within like 30 seconds of talking to somebody if they've been burned by geotech or not. And if they've been burned by geotech, they usually listen to what we say. But if they don't, sometimes they think what we're doing is just checking a box. And like you said, though, you know, there's you're paying to design something twice. You go and you excavate and the contractors on site, he can't execute what he bid. He's put on standby. There's additional costs for construction delays. And, and you've got all your subtrades sitting there waiting. And maybe by the time we have it redesigned, you know, your subtrades that you had in place have gone on to other jobs. Exactly. You know, we live in a very competitive construction world. You know, there's there's no doubt about it. There's a there's a you know, there's a lack of of skilled traits in this country. And like you said, if they move on to the next job, you may end up six or seven down the line after that because they've made commitments and promises yeah. down the road. So yeah, that's uh that's that's another refreshing thing to hear from a, from another structural engineer. What are then some other 
common misconceptions? Like you said that, you know, geotechnical engineering is just checking a box. So maybe like speaking about this relationship between geotechnical engineering and structural engineers, like what are some common other common misconceptions? I think some of the misconceptions are that some people think dirt is dirt. Well, it's not. It's all different. You know, you have your sand, you have your clay, and they all react differently when you put loads to them. Uh, a men an old mentor of mine once told me that for every good structural engineer, they got a best friend that's a geotechnical engineer and vice versa. You know, like 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 I said, that interaction between the two is needs to be seamless. And, you know, like Tim's identified, there's lots of different ways to classify soil. Just like there's lots of different types of foundations. There's lots of different types of loads. Uh, there's lots of different types of structures. Um, and, and a geotechnical needs to respect that, just like a structural engineer needs to understand how the soil is going to behave. It seems like the, the two fields are very deeply intertwined. Like, where do they diverge? The funny thing is, a lot of the times, people will contact a, a geotechnical engineer, and we struggle to try to convince them that they actually need a structural engineer. And I'm sure Tim probably has similar experiences. And the, and the biggest divergence or the biggest crossover is obviously the foundation itself. Oh, oh for sure. Because our, our structure sits, again, on the soil. We rely heavily on the geotechnical knowledge and because otherwise the building would either sink or settle or move in a way that we don't want. <laughs> All right, so I think what would be good to like touch on right now is that there are some like common issues that happens that crosses or like is in both geotechnical and structural engineering fields. Perhaps, uh, Tim, do you have an example that you could you could lay out for our listeners? Yes, so, I mean, we have it all the time. A developer comes in, they bought a lot. They haven't had any geotechnical testing done to the site. And so when they buy it, they bring it in into our office and we start designing a building. And when they start construction, and the excavators on site and they're digging their hole, you know, they could find 15 feet of garbage in there that would have been buried with topsoil. And so now they've got to remediate the site that, you know, could cost ten, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 to be able to put the building on. You know, they've got to pull all that garbage, all that bad soil out, and then have it engineered up. So, like, if they had had a geotechnical engineer right from the get-go, they would have known that that site had bad soil conditions, and maybe they could have, when buying the piece of property, could have reduced their bid, knowing that down the road they were going to have to remediate this site. Yeah, the old adage, you get what you pay for. You know, if there's a cheap lot that's the last one to be developed in a subdivision there's usually a reason there's a huge reason no one's wanted to touch it there's a reason you know it's so 
cheap yeah, because what's under the ground probably isn't what is conducive to you know standard construction exactly so basically, so basically there's like some due diligence steps that people should be doing even before they consider developing on a lot right yeah absolutely the you know like tim mentioned there's quite often you know that p that that step is missed and that step is missed because maybe nine out of ten times you find exactly what you expected to and when you find what you expected to sometimes you take the conditions for granted and you're you see it as an added cost but that one out of ten times that it saved you the money I can pretty much guarantee the money that you would have spent the other nine times will have been lost because you, because you didn't do it that uh, that one time that you know you found the 10, 15 feet of fill that Tim was talking about. So if you're a betting man, you may come up lucky, but then that tenth time you're just gonna lose the pot. That's uh, that's been my experience. That makes uh, that makes two of us. Yeah, the the thing that a lot of people fail to recognize about geotechnical engineering is that you're taking a sample with a six or eight inch hole. You know, you may take 10, 15 of those across 20, 30 acres, or maybe you're taking, you know, five to eight of those across three, four acres. Regardless, you know, it's less than 1% sample size. So there's a lot of interpretation taking place between those boreholes, and like Tim alluded to, conditions could change. You know, the, the the key is to do enough sampling so that you have enough confidence that you know the prescribed design parameters that a geotechnical engineer gives to a structural engineer is going to be relevant across the whole site. We were doing a condo building. And again, there was material testing for the concrete, but during the construction, um, salt was added into the form boards to remove the snow at the bottom of the forms. So, I mean, the, the concrete was tested. I mean, the t concrete test obviously came back good because it's you're getting the concrete right off the truck. Um, but once it once the concrete formed and we went back out to inspect, you could almost put your hand right through the concrete because the salt made it so that the concrete didn't cure correctly anyways. So between the uh, structural engineer and the geotechnical engineer who was doing the testing, we had to come up with a solution because it was essentially 40 cubic meters of concrete that needed to be jackhammered out exactly and you know back to kind of how we got on this topic no one likes being the bad guy that rejects the truck but look at what happens if you don't do that you end up having to jack out 40 cubic meters and doing it all over again i guess like this is a question for for both you arash and for tim is why are there such a shortage of uh, engineers in, in Canada or Ontario even? 
I would love someone to tell me that or to answer that question. Um, I don't know when we graduated, what was there, 100 engineers in our year or in my year anyways, but they don't all go into structural engineering. I mean, if, if you specialize in structural engineering, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a structural consulting engineer. You know, you could be a manager at a car dealership. It's a, it's it's an unfortunate reality that Tim's bringing up. You know, they say probably if 50% of people that graduate in Canada with an engineering degree actually go and do real true engineering, you'd be lucky. So not only are we missing out on the opportunities of our homegrown engineers, it's also very difficult for integration of foreign trained engineering. So you kind of throw those in the mix, you know, there's, there's a huge shortage. And, you know, I know that a lot of my classmates that weren't as interested in the, in the heavy design aspects of engineering, they, um, you know, they, they looked at going and doing like strategic consulting or they did, they went to work for a bank or, or a lot of other places that unfortunately are probably paying more. And we treat engineering as a commodity in Canada. And I can tell you based on where my family's from that that's not how they see it in Asia. And that is a serious issue that, you know, engineers Canada, professional engineers of Ontario really need to tackle because they need to elevate the standing of an engineer because it is an important role. You know, we've talked now probably about 15, 20 minutes here and we've identified a lot of issues that could be, could be corrected with, you know, sound engineering. And when there's not enough personnel in the industry, it's kind of hard to fix the issues because we're always just trying to deal with the problems in front of us. Well, it, it sounds like most problems that we have nowadays, the, the answer is not straightforward nor easy. What keeps you coming back to work each day in structural engineering? What gets you excited about it? I love every aspect of my job. I mean, I, like I said, I meet with clients every day that come in with a napkin sketch. We bring their napkin sketch into reality. I mean, it's, it's a great feeling. Um, when you're able to drive around town and see all the buildings that you've, I don't want to say designed or created, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great feeling. You're, we're molding, um, cities which is great molding cities that's a a really um beautiful way of thinking about it so i, I believe that structural engineering is a super important aspect of society i mean everyone lives in a home everyone lives in an apartment building i mean everyone walks into a car dealership without structural engineers none of these buildings or structures would be around or maybe they wouldn't be safe or they would cost a lot of money civil engineering is one of those like 
invisible fields. Every time you walk into a building or a car dealership, you don't think, oh, thank you, structural engineer, for making sure I'm not walking into an unstable building. But that is somewhat of the reality. Yeah, because for a structural engineer, all of our stuff gets covered up with drywall. I mean, again, you walk into a building, you don't see the wood studs, you see the nice fresh drywall with a nice fresh coat of paint. Uh, but behind those, behind the drywall and the paint are, are the uh, aspects of the building that are holding it up. So basically, structural engineers are the unsung heroes of every city and every building, really, because you're, you're what's holding it all up. You're making the skyline. Yes, if you like fair. this episode, I welcome you to stay up to date on all of our upcoming ones. We're going to be on all of the major podcast platforms, so you can follow us there. And if you would like to learn more about PRI Engineering, please visit our website, PRIEngineering.com. And don't forget, it's soil, not dirt.